by the name Joss Whedon. Uh, if you don't know him, uh, know him by name, you are familiar with his work. He, uh, he was, he's known as the creator of the, the TV series uh, 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 Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He co-wrote the original Toy Story. He also wrote the first two Avengers films. Um, he's someone who has uh, made a living of telling good stories and uh, seeking to bring, uh, bring hope to people through those stories. But back in 2013, he was asked a question himself about his hope for, uh, for humanity and the human race, whether, it's becoming, whether we're becoming smarter or better or uh, making progress. And this is what he said. He said, I think we're actually becoming stupider. And I don't even know if stupider is a word, right? I think it's more stupid, technically, but uh, we'll go with it. I think we're becoming stupider and more petty. What's going on in this country, and he's uh, speaking back in 2013 here, and many countries is beyond depressing, it's terrifying. He said, sometimes I have to remember who I'm talking to. I'll say some things about how terrible things are and meaningless and the world is heading towards destruction and war and apocalypse. And he said, at one point, my daughter says to me, I'm eight years old. I, she doesn't want to hear him talking and ranting about how the world is coming to an end and it's all meaningless and, and uh, depressing. But he says, but I can't believe anybody thinks we're actually going to make it before we destroy the planet. I honestly think it's inevitable. I have no hope. I want to be wrong more than anything. I hate to say it, it's that line from the Lord of the Rings, I give hope to man, I keep none for myself. Wow. I give hope to man, I keep none for myself. A again, he's, he's a man who has made a living of telling some very hopeful stories. Like they really are happy, happy stories that lift people up. But he says at the end of the day, I don't have that hope for my own life. I don't live with that hope. It's very difficult, frankly, to get through life where you don't have any hope. Most people, I think, will either put them hope, hope in themselves, they'll put their hope in God, or they'll try to live, as Joss is doing here, try to make it through life, try to live somehow without hope. I think for most of us, our preference is to put our hope in ourselves. I think we, we want to believe that we can do it, that we'll overcome, that we will save ourselves, or, or if it's not me, it's, it's, it's humanity, it's, it's whatever it is. We, we want to believe that we can do it. We want to, to trust in ourselves, I think. But at the same time, I think most people come to a point in their life where, um, for me, it was, it was in university, I came to the point where I felt I had seen enough of the selfishness of my own heart that for me, if, it was, if I was betting my happiness and my, my hope on what I saw in my own heart, I just didn't like the odds. I just didn't, I didn't have a lot of hope of what I was going to do where if, if, if it was, again, if it was up to me and if I was steering the boat. And so I kind of, the idea of, of hoping in myself, and as I looked around and saw other people, I thought, I, I don't think that's where the hope is. And, um, and many people will come, come to that point. Uh, when Joss Whedon describes this kind of self-destructive stupid he sees in the world, I would say, yeah, I kind of see that in the world too, but I, I see it in my own heart. And, 
And, and so the idea of trusting in myself, attractive as it is, just I don't think it's there. I don't think it's feasible. And so many people come to that conclusion. The idea of living without hope, that just seems like, I don't know how you can kind of go on, how you can find, find it. Many people will, will, at some point or another, toy with the idea of turning to God. Many people toy with the idea of turning to Jesus. But interestingly, when they do, they will do some strange things. They will not, not exactly approach Jesus on, on his terms. They'll look to Jesus for help, but they'll try and still stay in control. Like they're still the God, they're still running the ship. It's just like they, they've signed Jesus up for the team. They bring him on as, as one of the players on the bench. Um, I, I read of an advertisement for a huggable, washable, talking Jesus plush doll. And uh, it was retailing for $15.95. It was this cute little thing. You've got kind of fuzzy, uh, fuzzy Jesus hair and satin beard. And, um, and you would press on the, the hand and it would say all of these phrases. And according to the advertisement, this was a way to teach your children, introduce your your children to the teachings of Jesus and the words of Scripture, um, because purportedly he would you press this and and he would he would quote Scripture for you. It was like it was like Jesus there in in doll form, and that sounded pretty like a pretty attractive thing for many parents. But one one reviewer that I had had uh, come across, he had he had uh, spoken about this this doll, and he had actually pressed it enough times that he could hear everything that Jesus says, and. Contrary to the advertising, there was only one thing that he said that was actually from Scripture. Okay, it was, uh, uh, love one another as I have loved you. That's, that's a good verse. You know, as far as things go, that would be a good one to quote. But the other, the other statements from Jesus weren't exactly um, word for word from the Bible. He, he included phrases like, your life matters so much to me. Or, I love you and I have an exciting plan for your life. Oh, those, are, those are nice statements. They weren't taken directly from the pages of Scripture. I was hoping to, that they would have kind of filled out the picture of Jesus from the, from the Scriptures, right? That they have in, would have included some other verses. Maybe, maybe, you know, from Luke 13 where he says, unless you repent, you too will all likewise perish. That, that might have been an interesting one to include in the doll, right? Or how about, um, how about that favorite of yours, Woe to those who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. You know, if you press the button and he starts saying, whoa, you know, it kind of wake you up a little bit to some of the other teachings of Jesus. Or how, how about Matthew 10, 34? I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. You know, it would just kind of fill out your, your understanding of, you know, there's, there's some different sides to Jesus that you need to be aware of. Now, uh, th- that's all in, in jest. I'm not particularly have any, any concerns or, or uh, th- this isn't about uh, the, the Buddy Jesus doll that, that was uh, for, uh, for sale. But when I saw this advertisement, I thought this is, it's kind of a metaphor for the kind of Jesus that we often will turn to when we say, living without hope, I don't think I could take that. I look inside it and I don't think the hope is in here but I need something. And so I think often we will turn to kind of a, a sanitized version of Jesus, a, a buddy Jesus who we can sign up for the team without um, enduring too many, uh, 
Too many changes or uncomfortable statements that might come out of his mouth. That's kind of the, the scene that we find ourselves when we come to today's passage. We're in a passage today where a crowd, uh, we saw them grumbling with Jesus last week. Here they come to a point where Jesus says some hard things. He says some things that are kind of disagreeable, kind of uncomfortable. They kind of um, stretch them and challenge them. And we're going to see how they deal with those things. But also we're, we're asking the question, what do you do when you are faced with some of the more uncomfortable teachings of Jesus? When he says some things that are hard, how do you respond? What do you do with them? And so uh, that's where we are as we find ourselves in uh, John chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn, turn there with me. Um, we'll be in this, uh, the closing verses of this uh, chapter for, uh, for the rest of the morning, verses 60 to 71. And if you'd follow along as I'd read there, uh, John 6, verses 60 to 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? What if you're to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those, uh, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Jesus. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now to get at the meaning of this passage, I think we need to start with the crowd and start with their response to him. And particularly, they were uh, looking for a buddy Jesus on their terms. They were looking to sign him up for the team, to, to recruit him to their cause. And want to just see the, the, the problems that that caused for them. And, and exactly, how does Jesus respond to us when we do that? The scene opens in verse 60 with many of the disciples grumbling. Now, these disciples are not the, the 12 disciples. It's referring to this crowd of people that have been following Jesus since the day before when he took five loaves and two fish and miraculously fed this crowd of thousands. And this, so this group of people, they're chasing after him because they're really into Jesus. They, they, they think that there is something in him. They, 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 so, they were so taken by his miracle, they wanted to make him king by force. They, they wanted to, uh, to recruit him for their cause. But then Jesus started to say some things that were kind of uncomfortable for them. They didn't really like the things that they heard coming out of his mouth. In verse 35, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's a great promise. Those are great words in a sense, but they were 
taken aback by, by the fact that he said that I am the bread of life. He, he wasn't pointing to the bread of life. He wasn't offering them bread of, the bread of life. He was saying, I am the bread of life. He was claiming to be the one who satisfies the, the hunger and longing of the human soul. And those were hard words for the crowd to accept. Then in verse 38, he said, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, tough words to hear. He was claiming to have come from heaven on a divine mission. He wasn't, he wasn't going to have people uh, think that he was just some ordinary guy, some, someone who had just started to teach and to preach. He claimed to have come on a divine mission. By the time you get down to verse 60, the crowd has had enough. They say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? I used to think the word for hard meant like hard to understand because there's a lot of things that Jesus says that are hard to understand. Maybe they, didn't, they just didn't, didn't figure out what he was saying. This word doesn't actually mean that. The word for hard here doesn't mean hard to understand. It means hard to accept. It's, it means offensive, harsh, like I, I, I don't want to listen to this. And that's exactly how they felt. They were struggling with, uh, with the content of, of, uh, of what Jesus was saying. In verse 60, 61, they grumble. And then by verse 65, they pack it in. And the verse just says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. We never hear from the crowd again. They're gone. They, they pick up and leave. And in fact, there are this mass exodus of, of people. They were looking for someone different. Someone who wouldn't say things that disagreed with them. They wanted the Savior, Jesus, but as soon as he started disagreeing with them or saying things that kind of didn't fit with their box, they rejected Jesus. They pushed him away. They were looking for a buddy Jesus who would agree with them. And when they were confronted with this, the hard sayings of Jesus, they pushed him back. And so I want to ask you, before we carry on, I want you to sit and, and answer for yourself, what do you do with the hard sayings of Jesus? What do you do when you're confronted by the teachings of, of Scripture that you struggle to, to listen to, frankly? They, they disagree with you. Maybe they point to areas of your life that you find you don't want anyone else meddling with. What do you do when you hear the teachings of Scripture line up in a way that you're not very comfortable with, you don't agree with? It, it could be the, the Bible's teachings about judgment, about marriage. could be the Bible's teachings about relationships, about sexuality, about giving or, or service. Like, the, these, these are a, um, a list of preachers, like, do not go near topics, right? They, they're, they're not popular. They're, what do you do when you are confronted with teachings of, from Scripture that you struggle with, that you, you find disagreeable? When I was first exposed to Scripture, my first strategy for dealing with the hard, the hard parts was to argue with them. What I, what I found myself doing was coming up with arguments and reasons why the Bible was stupid in this area and I was somehow had a better plan or idea. 
And, and, and so I, step one, I argued with Scripture. Then I became a believer, and I took on a different strategy. It wasn't so much, I, I couldn't in good conscience still argue with Scripture and say, oh, I know better than that. But I still didn't want to fully submit to the Scriptures. So I found myself doing something else. I would walk around Scriptures. I could actually take a page of Scripture or a chapter from the Bible, and I could read from top to bottom, and if there was like three verses in the middle t- dealing with some aspect of my life that I didn't really want to hear, I could actually read right through it, and it was almost as if the words weren't there. I- I'd mentally kind of just do a-, a hop, skip, and a jump over that section, and it just, uh, like, it didn't go in. And I would probably still be walking around Scripture, uh, avoiding the parts that I didn't like, had it not been for... Uh, initially a man and then a series of men that God brought into my life that, that, that just invested in me. They opened the Bible, opened the scriptures, and at all the places where I would have liked to have said, let's go on to the next one, they said, no, this, what about this one, Paul? What, what have you done in this area of your life? Or how, how have you dealt with this area uh, of the scriptures teaching? And it was, it was a process for me that just, I, I couldn't run anymore. I couldn't, I couldn't pretend that it wasn't there anymore. And it forced me to, to deal with some of the hard parts, to, 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 to realize that I, I needed to confront them and I needed to do so with the humility that says, God, you're right. I, I, need, to, I need to listen to you and I need to change. Then I went off to seminary. And when I went off to seminary, I learned that there is this whole new, it, there's actually an industry um, of professional scholars and uh, academics who's, who are able to make a living by teaching you uh, how to get around the difficult parts of Scripture with very spiritually, spiritual sounding reasons and arguments. It's, it's incredible. Uh, I, I remember hearing a, uh, a Japanese preacher. I was, uh, I was in a, a small gathering, and, and one, of the, one of the pastors had been uh, asked to preach that day. And he was preaching a fairly difficult text from the Old Testament. And started off okay. He's preaching down through the passage, and he comes to this place where it's kind of a tough, uh, it was called what, what our text today would be called a hard saying. Uh, this is a, a hard word. And um, he said, when I read that, it kind of bothered me. And um, I, I thought, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure God's really like that. And, and uh, he said it, it bothered him at first, but it was interesting to me what he did. He said, so what I did, I went down, to, I went down and there's a, a large religious library in, in Tokyo. And he said, I went down there for the afternoon. I found, I came across a book and it, written by this scholar so-and-so and what he says is that this event probably never really actually happened, and this particular teaching probably doesn't really apply anymore, and that this, you don't really need to worry about it. And, and this had brought this particular um, pastor great relief, because <laughs> he didn't want it to say what it seemed to be saying. Um, and finding this scholar in this big religious library brought great relief to him that he no longer needed to actually deal with what the passage actually seemed to be saying. 
And what I've learned is that for almost every hard teaching from the Bible, whether it be about God, about sin, about our lives, for every hard teaching from the Bible, you can find a scholar or a preacher who will tell you that that teaching or passage or verse doesn't really say, say what it's saying, it doesn't, maybe it didn't really happen, doesn't really apply, and you don't really need to deal with it. Now, there are times when context from a passage, it, it, can, it can add nuance and understanding, and, and, and we do need to, to really come to terms with what, what it says. And, and, and sometimes there are, uh, the, it, it does affect the face value of a particular verse or passage. But I've learned to be very wary and cautious whenever someone says, what this is really saying is, and then they say it means the exact opposite of what it seems to be saying. I'm very cautious when someone says that. What's your strategy? What do you actually do when you're confronted with verses and passages and teachings in Scripture that you find disagreeable? When they seem to be hard, they don't say what you would wish that they were saying. John the Baptist, we know, is one of the godliest men of all time. Jesus gave him full marks, right? He was, he was a, uh, not only a, a godly man, a great teacher of the scriptures, but even he struggled with this. He pointed people to Jesus. He taught people about Jesus. He even baptized Jesus. And again, Jesus gave him full marks. But he was kind of expecting that Jesus would make life better, like things would get more comfortable and more something when, when Jesus came, right? But what happened as John the Baptist's ministry unfolded is he was arrested, and then he was thrown into prison. And when you get thrown into prison, and particularly when conditions are as bad as they were in the first century, you get a lot of time to think, and you start thinking about, well, what's, what's God like? And what is this life that we've been called to live? And this is not... I, it's not really what I was kind of expecting. This, I kind of thought that Jesus would fix everything. And things don't all seem to be getting fixed. And so he, he has this, uh, this uh, statement recorded for, for us in Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. He sends his disciples to ask Jesus a question. It says this, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, said to him Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Like, I was kind of hoping for a savior, make things, make my life a little better, kind of pick things up a little bit. Or like, that doesn't seem to be you. Or is there someone else coming? Like, is it going to, what's going on here? And I always think of this line whenever, some, whenever people tell me the Bible is actually a, just a compilation of legends written by um, his, uh, his uh, most devout followers as, uh, as propaganda. And I think, no, no, if I were going to sit down and write pro propaganda about Jesus, there's no way I would include this line. Like one of the most respected men in the first century saying, eh, this is not really the way I was thinking things were going to turn out, Jesus. I, I wouldn't include this, right? But what a passage like this teaches me is that even guys like John the Baptist could, could struggle to kind of come to terms with who Jesus was and what he was doing. Interesting how Jesus responds to the question. Doesn't ignore it. 
what he does is he points to all of the miracles and things that he's been doing that testify to who he is. And then in verse 6, he just says very simply, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who can understand who I am and what I've come to do. And even if it doesn't fit, even if you struggle with some things that I say, with some things that I do, they don't line up with your expectations. You have the honesty and the humility to say, oh, maybe I got that wrong. Maybe things, maybe I need to adjust. Maybe I need to change. Maybe I hadn't gotten it all figured out and I need to adjust myself to this Savior who has come. If you never allow the teachings of Scripture to disagree with you, if you, like me, tended to ignore the parts of the Bible you don't really like, and if you find explanations for why the Bible actually agrees with everything that you already believed anyway, that's probably not Jesus, right? That's probably buddy Jesus, maybe. Maybe it's just your own voice. And when we start relating to a buddy Jesus, it leads us farther away from the true Jesus. It's not like, well, they both have the word Jesus in it, so it's kind of the same. No, it actually leads you farther away. This comes out when Jesus uh, saw the crowd complaining about his words, and he responds to them in verse 61. He asks this, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He's saying, like, if you're getting like, bogged down with me saying I'm the, I'm the bread of life and I'm, I'm, I've come down from heaven, like, if, if you struggle with that, at just the point where we think, oh, now he's going to try and persuade them. Now he's going to give some really good evidence and, and explanation why, why they should believe this. No, he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, if you're struggling at this, wow, things are going to get a lot worse. When, like, how, if you're looking for a political messiah and you're not willing to kind of change your, your, your grid and your, your worldview to kind of figure this out, when I get tortured and put up on the cross and crucified, like your mind's going to be blown. Or, or when I ascend in front of a watching crowd, when I, when I ascend up into heaven uh, with the clouds, you're just not going to have words for that. or, or, or it just, You're just not going to be able to deal with that. And, and so it, it's that sense that when you start down this buddy Jesus road, you keep moving farther and farther away from the biblical Jesus. You move farther and farther away from the Lord Jesus. And the problem with that is, buddy Jesus can't save us. Only the Lord Jesus, only the true Savior can be our Savior. That's what Jesus is saying, I think, in verse 63, when he says, if it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. He's confronting the basic challenge that's been going on all through this chapter. The crowd wanted more physical food. Jesus says, you guys need more spiritual food. You guys are empty on the inside and just keep stuffing yourself with more food. That's not solving the problem. You don't need more physical food. You need spiritual food. Then they wanted a political rescue. And he says, no, you don't need a political. You need spiritual rescue. It's your soul that's on the line here. Just kind of me coming in and dealing with Rome and fixing that all up, that's not the problem. They wanted to understand Jesus on a purely human basis. 
And Jesus argued what they really needed to understand was him on a spiritual basis. They needed to understand his spiritual mission, his spiritual rescue, his spiritual salvation. And as I see Jesus interacting with the crowds, I realize if I keep trying to force Jesus to be this mold of who I want him to be, what I want, the danger is that I might never get what I need. And that's what he's arguing throughout this chapter. They keep bringing him what they want, and he keeps telling them what they need. And there's there's that struggle. The Savior that we need to rescue us has to have the freedom to to disagree with us. He has to have the freedom to point to areas of our life and not have us run away, not have us ignore, deflect, and, and challenge. We have to let him show us how we're wrong, how we need to change, or else we're just hearing our own voice. So we've said that we want Buddy Jesus on our terms, but next I want to consider that what we really need is the Lord Jesus on his terms. Worshiping a caricature of Jesus doesn't help us. Worshiping a Buddy Jesus, a a sanitized version of Jesus, a Jesus that always agrees with us, he will not, that, that version of Jesus will not save us. We need the Lord Jesus on his terms or not at all. Now, up until this point, we've seen how the crowd has responded to Jesus. Now we're going to turn to the disciples. We're going to look at at how the inner circle responded to this. And to do that, I want want you to put yourself in their shoes. Put yourself in Capernaum and kind of see where they have come from and and what they must have been feeling. Because these were the group, the, the 12 were a group that Jesus chose early on. They were on the ground floor when Jesus had just begun his ministry. And, and yet, over time, through his miracles, through different things that he accomplished, he gained more and more traction, more momentum. He, he was like a rock star in terms of the, the crowds that were gathering, the thousands that, that would follow him. And if you were on the ground floor, when now there's hundreds and thousands of people that are are on Jesus is uh, on cheering him on and, and, and following him around, you'd be excited, right? You, you'd feel like, I, I got in on the ground floor of something big here. I'm in the inner circle of a huge dynamic movement. And then Jesus starts to say some things that they don't like. And there's this mass exodus. As Jesus is teaching, there are hundreds walking out. And now you're left and it doesn't feel as exciting anymore. It doesn't feel like you're on the winning side anymore. It feels like this whole thing is fizzling, fizzling out. That's kind of the situation that the, the 12 disciples found themselves in verses 67 and 68. And here's what it says. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Do you think the disciples found Jesus' words a little hard? I do. I think they struggled the way the crowd did. I think they heard Jesus saying, I think, boy, maybe if you kind of just toned it down and made it a little more relatable and, and like there's things that you just don't need to say. Like I'm sure all of those feelings are, 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 are going on in their mind, right? But they teach me that true disciples 
while they might have some subjective things going on in their, in their mind, when they are faced with the hard teachings, they lean in. By faith, they lean in with the recognition, no, this is the Holy One of God. This is one who has given evidence to his life. He has given evidence to his identity. And although he may disagree with me, although I, I may find some of the things he says uncomfortable and challenging, by faith I will lean in. When, when my heart wants me to, 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 to run from this and to struggle with this and to grumble about it and complain about it and avoid it, by faith I will lean in because he's the one with, that has the words of eternal life. When Peter spoke of this eternal life, he didn't come up with a term on his own. He'd heard Jesus speak of it again and again throughout his ministry. In verse 63, for example, Jesus had said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. We've already looked at the negative side of those words. But Peter and the apostles learned to cling to this message. They believed that Jesus' words really were spirit and life. That his words came with the power of the Holy Spirit. That his words brought life to their own spirit. They believed that something was powerful taking place in those hard words. That where there was disagreement, they recognized who he was and who they were, and they decided, I, I need to trust him. I need to receive him. I, my, my, my sinful self would have me run away from this, would have me ignore it and deflect it. By faith, I will lean in. By faith, I will listen. True disciples don't grumble with the hard sayings of Scripture like I did. True disciples don't ignore the hard sayings of Scripture like I do. They don't look for a scholar who can assure them this verse or this teaching doesn't really say what it really seems to be saying. True disciples humble themselves before the Word of God as the Word of God and, says, and say to themselves, Jesus Christ is the Holy One of God. His words are spirit and life. He has the words of eternal life. I will lean in for my, for my hope and for my life, for my salvation. And they're convinced that if they're in disagreement with what the Bible teaches, they're the one that needs to change. So after seeing the buddy Jesus that we want on our terms, after seeing the Lord Jesus that we accept on his terms, I want you to see how, now how Jesus closes off in encouraging the disciples. And shows us that Jesus is still Lord even when his stock is falling. Because we've seen that there's been this, this huge movement of people away from Jesus. People are, 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 are leaving him. People are walking away. And the disciples could very well have been asking themselves the question, Jesus seems like a good guy and everything. I trust him, but boy, our world is so sinful. Maybe this isn't going to work. And maybe some of you are finding yourselves asking the same question. You open up the, the paper, you read the news, you see what's happening in the world and say, I trust in God, but I don't know, this world, it just seems to be so messed up. Maybe Joss Whedon is right. Maybe there isn't any hope for us. Maybe the world is so sinful that even God can't fix it. Maybe, maybe things are just broken and, and they can't, can't get put back together again. 
I think that's why John goes out of his way to say what he says in verse 64. He says this, Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. See, the point is that Jesus knew all this would happen. The point is that Jesus knew the crowd would walk away. He even, know, he even knew who would betray him. And he's referring here to one specific person who would betray him. And that person wouldn't betray him at this point for another year. Jesus knew it already. Yet in verse 70, he's able to say, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And John adds, He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus knew from the beginning those who would reject him. He knew from the beginning who would betray him. The defections aren't a sign that things are spinning out of control and Jesus can't figure it out and what's going to happen. It's for uh, Jesus makes it clear to us that even when things seem to be spinning out of control, things are laying out exactly according to schedule. Exactly as he understood, exactly as he knew, exactly as he predicted, that things were according to the plan. Jesus is still Lord even when his stock is falling. He even repeats one of his earlier statements that even faith is a gift from God. He says that in verse 65 when he says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. His point is that he's not surprised by the crowd's defection. He's not taken aback by the stubbornness of the human heart. He knows that the human heart is so stubborn that nobody comes to him. Nobody comes to him unless the Father first works in that person's life, first melts that heart, deals with that stubbornness, draws them to Jesus. If he doesn't do that first, there's nothing going to happen. So Jesus isn't surprised or thrown off by the sinfulness of this world, and we shouldn't be either. Things are still going according to schedule, still going, going according to plan. Jesus Christ is still Lord. He still rules in this world. Jesus' popularity may rise and fall. He's still in control. Randy Alcorn tells a story of a visit he made to Egypt. He's uh, a pastor and an author. He was on a short-term mission trip to the, to the Middle East, and he stopped off in Egypt. And while he was there, his hosts took him to a cemetery. Not much of a, a sightseeing visit for, for, for many of us, but he describes walking down this path that was strewn with garbage, comes to a cemetery that looked old, dilapidated, and uncared for. When he gets there, he sees he's directed to uh, the tomb of a man by the name of William Borden, who died in 1913. William Borden was the heir to the Borden Dairy Estate. He was a millionaire back in the 1900s. He was a millionaire at the age of 21. He was a Yale graduate. He had done graduate work at Princeton University. With his life before him, with the resources and the opportunities, he saw life the way many people don't see life. He had come to Christ under the uh, ministry of the Moody, uh, Moody Bible Church, and he was burdened for the cause of world missions. He had become particularly burdened for the Kansu, uh, uh, Kansu people in China. They're a majority Muslim group in China, 
And he felt that God was calling him and God had equipped him to bring hope and good news to them. He prepared to go. He uh, set out. And the first stop was Egypt because he needed to learn Arabic. So he gets to Egypt, begins to learn Arabic. Four months into his stay, he develops spinal meningitis and he dies in Egypt, never having, never having made it to China, never having reached the Kansu people. He was shown the tombstone. And on the tombstone, it records a number of things about his life. And the last re- line of that tombstone says, Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. To give so much, to sacrifice for so much, and in this life to see so little, there wouldn't be much explanation for that. There isn't much explanation for the life, ministry, and death of John the Baptist. There isn't much uh, explanation for the life of countless other followers who have been confronted with the hard sayings of Jesus, the hard teachings of Scripture, and some of the hard calls that, that uh, God sometimes requires of us. And those people who lean in by faith say, but this is the Holy One of God. He has the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? And they lean in and they live lives that are inexplicable apart from faith in Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to do that this morning. I want to encourage you to lean into the hard teachings of Scripture. I don't know what part of Scripture is hard for you. You probably don't struggle with the same things that the crowd struggled with when they heard Jesus after the feeding of the 5,000. You may struggle with different things. You may struggle with, uh, with hard sayings in different areas of your life. And if you're tempted, as I was, to kind of walk around them, to kind of ignore those par- portions of Scripture that deal with areas in your life which are too personal, which are too, too challenging, which are too hard, I want to encourage you, maybe what you need to do is take a step towards fellowship. That was, that was my problem. I was trying to, I was trying to live, live the Christian life like this. And that was, that was how I was walking around the hard teachings of Scripture. M- maybe you need to, to lean into a, a life group. Maybe you need to lean into fellowship in some other way. Maybe you need to lean into church membership. And, and just the, the very act of submitting yourself to a, a, a body of believers and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm not just passing through, I'm, I'm, I'm committing myself. Those little steps of, uh, of fellowship and responding to, to, to God, allowing others in, uh, often can help us deal with some of those things. But I want to encourage you to lean in by faith to some of the hard teachings of Scripture that you might otherwise be tempted to ignore. For we believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God. We believe that his words are spirit and they are life and they are life-giving. And we believe that he, in his words, give and bring eternal life to us. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the hope that you offer. We know that we can't save ourselves. We need to be saved from ourselves. So, Father, help us to stop running from the hard words. 
Help us worship you as you are. Give us a humility to receive all of your words. Give us a strength to follow you. And help us to stop going it alone. Help us to make time for people in our lives who will lead us in your truth. For, you, for we worship you in the name of the one who is our eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.